Good evening and welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings with Lauren and Brian. This, of course, is Brian in Buffalo, New York, U.S. of A. And with me, as always, is Lauren from Swansea. How are you, Brian? I'm I'm good. I mean, you could hear that we had to delay recording for a couple minutes because the lawnmowers were revving up and it's like nice enough outside to mow lawns. Um, it's not snowing in Buffalo. So it's nice. Yeah, I haven't mo- I haven't mowed the lawn for a couple of weeks because it's been raining. So the last time I did it, Corey and Theo helped me. That was interesting. So I haven't mowed a lawn in 30 years. That's why I live in an apartment, so I don't have to. Oh, ours is a tiny little lawn, and it's not an electric mower. It's just a push mower. One of those, like, no push mowers with the blades on it, like from an old horror movie? Yeah. Speaking yeah. of horror movies, it's amazing. You know how I taught you into getting the Shutter Network? Yes. Well, there's a new movie on there you've got to see. What's it called? It's called Psycho Gorman. And Lauren, and all the people yeah. out there listening, this movie is wonderful. I don't want to give away too much. Let's just say the most evil force in the entire universe was buried on Earth for generations. And he was accidentally uncovered by two, like, crazy kids, like, little kids, that now control him. And it's their adventures. Oh, my God. It sounds like something Corey and Theo would do. I don't think they should watch it, though. I think you should watch it first. No, no, I wouldn't wouldn't let them watch it, but it sounds like something that they would do, especially Theo. Theo is a little terror. It he's, is he's, wonderful. He's very it's funny, Lauren, you will love it, and I will get messages from you for weeks on end making references to this film. Um, yeah, can I just tell you about my own personal horror story? Uh, please. And that is people, people. I know that we're still, I know we're coming to the end of COVID now, and that, you know, masks aren't the first thing that we think about. But please, it covers your nose. <laughs> yes, it does. Please cover your nose. My brother, um, <laughs> when he sees people walking around with like their nose sticking out of the mask, he walks up to him and says, do you, do you walk around with your dick hanging out of your pants? <laughs> and they're just, like, what? Like, and he's like, cover your fucking nose. It's like, please, just, it's like, I understand that they slip sometimes and everything, but it's just like... Um, it's it's like the people that purposely wear it, and it like their nose is hanging out. And you're like, oh no, cover your nose. This has been going on for eighteen months, Dan. Yeah, it's. He's <laughs> covering your nose. <laughs> Do you know? I've actually heard people in the states complaining that now that we don't have to wear masks anymore, they're all pissed off because they spent all this money getting all these different masks to match their wardrobes. Like, they're more worried about how fashionable they were with their masks than the pandemic Um, itself. I got some history masks, like, with um, different people on it. Like, I've got one with Elizabeth I on it and Oscar Wilde and Emmeline Pankhurst. But if I don't have to wear them again, I'd be quite happy that I don't have to wear them again. I've got transatlantic history ramblings masks, which you could all get because there may be another wave in the future. You never know. You might need masks again. 
So if you do, you can go to our store, which the link is in the description here. You can get t-shirts, you can get masks, you can get hoodies, you can get... Lauren, should I stop shamelessly self-promoting? No, but I think I think I might keep wearing a mask just for a little bit longer after it all ends. Mostly because I have not had a cold in 18 months. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. I'm living the dream. <laughs> yeah, people are like, isn't it crazy? Like, the flu season was so mild this year. And it's like, yeah, because A, none of us left our houses, and B, when we did, we were wearing masks. What do you think's going to happen? Yeah, it's just I've not I've not had the norovirus, you know, because um, the winter vomiting virus or anything like that. And I'm just, like, so happy. But you I, know what the mask I... does not stop? What? Syphilis. Well, that's another type of mask. <laughs> Oh, we haven't had a good syphilis story in a while, have we? No, no. We we need to we need to get back on to that. We haven't mentioned syphilis. Syphilis? What's syphilis? Syphilis in a while either. <laughs> Sniffleus. Sniffleophagus. Yeah. I know, right? Ooh. Oh. I just learned today, Brian, that I am famous. You are famous, Lauren. I've been telling you I this. Know. We're on in how many countries? That people, that people are actually scared about sending me friends requests on Facebook. Well, it's intimidating to request the friendship of someone famous. I'm not famous. Lauren. Yeah? You're famous. Um, scary. Yeah, isn't it cool? Yeah. Theo's famous too, but he knows he's famous. He's TikTok famous. <laughs> See, and the thing is, like, you're like you're like the good famous because like everyone writes good things about you. Like, if TMZ were to like follow you down the street, it'd be all positive stories. So, well, have we had had any emails recently? Oh, you hear that? You? The lawnmowers are back. Actually, that's a oh, weed no. whacker. Yeah, that is that is a strimmer. Um, we have we've had some great feedback lately. Um. Mostly all positive about the guests and some guest suggestions. Some stuff we're going to talk about on maybe next episode because I don't want to get too involved in it this time. But people have been sending photographs of their deep fried food. And let's just leave it at that for now. I'm so glad they've been doing that. That makes me smile. Continue. I know. Oh, it's disgusting. Amazing. No, it's disgusting. I think that we should get Alison Weir back on because she's got a new book out and it's fantastic. I do too, and Alison has never once sent me a picture of anything deep fried. I don't think she would. I, I don't. I don't think she would send you something. You know, she might like send you deep fried cod if she was having fish and chips, but I don't think that she would send you a picture of anything deep fried. You know what I'm thinking of buying, Lauren? Um, I don't know. Thinking of buying one of those air fryers. <laughs> you gonna, are you gonna air fry a selection of candy bars? Well, no, but do, do they have air fryers in Wales? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it's like a healthy alternative to deep frying, and supposedly it's like really good. Yeah, uh, but um, also y- you're gonna just. Like experiment with deep frying things. No, no, you know me. I'm a, I'm actually I'm quite a chef. Um, well, actually, people probably don't know that that listen to the show, but I am like a cooking fanatic and like a. Uh, I never went to school to be a chef, so I'm not a chef. But 
I am like the ultimate like kitchen experimenter. Like, you know how people have spice racks? I have multiple spice shelves because I'm like addicted to this stuff. It's part of my therapy well, for my Looney Tunes. You know, <laughs> like when my anxiety and shit flares up, I cook and prep food and that's what calms me down and centers me. I make a lot of shit that I won't even eat because like I'll make spicy things and stuff which I can't eat. So like my family, like my brother, my mother, they get lots of meals um, for nothing. I'll be just like, oh, I was nervous the other day. Here's a, you know, here's a souffle. But uh, I'm thinking an air fryer might be good. What are you going to, like, make um, air fried chicken wings? You can. Of course you can. I don't know. I was thinking, you know, I bet there's a lot of Mexican dishes I could make in the air fryer that would be delicious. You could make churros in an air fryer. Yeah, exactly. Oh, speaking of which, there's this, like, new cat product called churros. And they look like a tube of, um... You know that Gogurt shit that people eat that's like yogurt in a tube? Yeah. It looks like that, like but it's for cats. And it... Oh, dear. It is adorable. They're called Lickables. And if you hold this thing up, she will just like go to town on it. And she's, it's like kitty crack. She loves them. So anybody with cats out there, look up these like uh, cat Lickables churros. They're phenomenal. At least Cleo loves them. I would like to see... I'd like to see Cleo on catnip. Cleo likes the catnip. Cleo likes the catnip a lot. She's a little Cheech and Chong. Or for yeah, those younger it. listeners out there, she's a regular Harold and Kumar. Jane Silent Bob. I, I, I know, I dated myself with uh, with uh, Cheech and Chong, didn't I? Yeah. And I almost dated myself by accidentally almost saying Laurel and Hardy, but can you picture Laurel and Hardy as potheads? Oh my God, that would be hilarious. <laughs> moving the piano on weed yeah that's a money making idea speaking of weed is it legal over there no because they just like made it legal in New York and like half the people are flipping their shit and the other people are like trying to figure out ways to make money off it already and I'm just wondering when my town's gonna start stinking I I don't know. I think legalization, it just sort of takes the stigma away and that people won't want to do it if it's legal. Yeah, but you don't understand, Lauren. Buffalo is famous for what it smells like. What does it smell like? I've never heard this. Yes, look it up online while we're talking. Buffalo smells like Cheerios. Does it? Well, sometimes. See, we have the big cereal factory is in Buffalo. So whatever cereal they're making, the whole city smells like that day. Like, some days your entire city smells like Cheerios. Some days the entire city smells like uh, Frankenberry. (laughs) Stuff like that. It's really awesome. Oh, my God. If your whole town smelled of Lucky Charms, Theo would be there in a shop. But look it up online. They even sell T-shirts in Buffalo that says, My city smells like Cheerios. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Smells. Yep, she's Oops. looking it up, folks. You can hear her typing because Lauren's got apparently metal fingers because click, 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 click. 
Yeah, the tears. You see it? It says more generally that it smells like cereal. Yeah, but we know what cereal's made there, so we know what it smells like. Oh, it's of General Mills product line, so yeah. Yep, that my city. We smell like Cheerios. Like cupcakes with cupcakes with oat notes. <laughs> you know, Lauren, I think we, we should start doing on this channel channel on this show is now that I've had you eating ho-hos, yeah. I think you're going to... you're gonna, Next time you go to that store that sells all this shit, you're going to take pictures of a bunch of products and ask me which one to get, and I'm going to make you try them on the air. Okay. But as long as it's not like... Um, I, I I don't like hot tamales. They're not, they're not nice. No, just you know, send me a picture of a bunch of things, and I'll say, get those. And then the next time we record, we'll have you try them and tell everybody what you think. What the Welsh think of American junk food? Uh, um, I, I don't want to try Mountain Dew. Now, I'm telling you, Lauren, there's a lot of pressure now because you are going to represent all of Wales now. <laughs> Even Tom Jones? The whole of Wales rests on your shoulders now. Tom Jones and Anthony Hopkins included? No, they both live in America, so they don't count. No, Anthony Hopkins is, is, in, a, is in Wales. Well, he lives in, He also lives in Los Angeles. Yeah, but he's back in Wales right now. He's he's living here in the pandemic. That's oh. where... That's where it... Does he live near you? Um, I think he's living in Port Albert at the moment. Which is where? You say um, this like I know the, 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 the map of Wales. <laughs> Um, it's about 20 odd miles away from where I live. That's very close. You could go visit yeah. him. Yeah, like my friend Brian told me to visit you with Anthony Hopkins. And he'd say, Brian? The Brian? Yeah, that obnoxious skit from the, the podcast, yeah. Yeah, I loved his wrestling book, The Wrestlers Wrestlers, Masters of the Craft of Professional Wrestling, available now on Amazon <laughs> and all your fine book retailers. Or you could pop me up on the show <laughs> website and order a copy through me too. Anthony Hopkins apparently loves it. <laughs> and if Hannibal Lecter endorses it. I've got a complaint, Brian. Where's my copy? <laughs> I, you, you know I'm sending you other things too. And now you said you want another Duff's bag, so now i got to wait to get another Duff's bag to send you as well. You're going to get this, like, monster care package. <laughs> I did get a very... I did get a monster care package last time as well. Yes, you did. I did. Now, monster in the proper sense of the word monster. I do want to point out, I don't think Anthony Hopkins should do the taste test with you because he was Hannibal Lecter and we know what he likes to I eat. know, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I might find myself, I might find my liver being eaten with them fava beans and a nice Chianti. Well, I like fava beans. (laughs) (laughs) You know you just might have made an Easter egg. Probably. I usually do. Oh, did you know we got, like, another superstar guest coming up today? I know, right? So we're so lucky. We have got folks you might want to google it now so that when the guest comes on you'll you know you'll you can impress your friends by how smart you are by knowing who richard smoley is i'm gonna call him an esoteric philosopher i don't know if he'll like that term i'll ask him but he is 
he's brilliant and he's hypnotic to listen to and he's going to be coming on in a few minutes so um you think we should do days in history i mean <clears throat> yeah today in history I don't know. I think I lost the Today in History page because you made me look up what Buffalo smells like. But what does Buffalo smell like? Cheerios. There you go. Unless you're at Duff's, then it smells like deliciousness. Um, and Cheerios. Deliciousness and Cheerios. Mm-hmm. Do you like Cheerios? Um, my nephews do, but Theo prefers Lucky Charms. Well, he's addicted to Lucky Charms. I know. I told him about the bag of marshmallows, of Lucky Charms marshmallows that are just the marshmallows from Lucky Charms. And he um, he got very excited. He nearly wet himself. Yeah, and that, so giving him pure sugar is a good thing to do on top of that. <laughs> Why don't you get him a couple of pixie sticks while you're at it? Oh, I didn't give it to him. Before. Oh, okay. Oh gosh, no, no. We we have pixie sticks here. It's like it's like kid. Oh, pixie sticks it here really are, is. are just pure sugar. It's just like a tube of sugar. Um, it, it is Kit Kat crack. Yeah, it's it's awful. How about a day in history? Yes. All right. I've just lost mine because I Google, but you can go first. Well, do you want a baseball one? Or a pop culture uh, one. Yes. Hit me with your fancy rounders. Alright, I think you're going to like this one. Today in history, which is May 25th, 1919. Casey Stengel, who, famous baseball player and manager, entertained the crowd when he was playing with the Pittsburgh Pirates in a game when they were playing the Brooklyn Dodgers and when he went up to bat he tipped his hat to the crowd and a bird flew out of his hat oh that's so sweet he had a sparrow under his baseball hat I hope it didn't poo on his head I just just why would you do that what put the bird under your hat and then tip your hat to the crowd and the bird flies away Oh, but can you imagine the bird? The bird could have suffocated and died. Or, like you said, shit on his head. So yeah. Um, but you know, my PSA for today is: if you're going to put a bird under your baseball hat, uh, you know, don't keep it under there long so it doesn't die, and um, be prepared to be pooped on. Yeah. But that's mine. That was my baseball one for today. The other one I was going to give you was, uh, you know, back in 77, this little movie no one ever heard of came out called Star Wars. Oh, gosh. Why would you talk about that? That's like the least talkable movie ever. Yeah, no one's ever heard of it, so I I don't even... I'll skip that. I mean, it didn't spawn any memorable TV series that had a cute little uh, puppet. Grogu. Don't get me talking about Grogu or there'll be a whole episode about it. So you better better just skip over that and go to your day in history. Okay, doke. My day in history is in on the 25th of um, May, 1522. Holy Roman Emperor Charles the Fifth, Charles the First, no, he was Charles the Fifth, returns to Spain because he hadn't been in Spain for a while. Well, that's a good one, Lauren. Yeah. If you can remember like which number he was. <laughs> do you, 
I do like the Holy Roman Empire. It's a giggle. Now, speaking it's of like, giggles... It's weird. Yeah. Speaking of giggles, how did neither of us go with 1895? I, I, I didn't see 1895. You know what happened today it. in history in 1895? Oscar Wilde sentenced to two years in prison. For gross indecency, yeah. I know. Poor Oscar. Yeah. And everybody thinks he died of syphilis. He didn't. He died of meningitis because um, when he was in prison, he he uh, contracted dysentery. And he fell over in the, um, when he was in the uh, prison chapel when he would because every every week it would you would you would be escorted into the chapel you had no choice over it and he um, he collapsed and he hit his head and uh, he was never the same again after that and it turns out that when he'd hit his head he'd actually ruptured ruptured something in his ear and that's how he became ill with meningitis. Wow. Way to bring us down, Lauren. Well, I, well, I, you know, I just, I just want to put it out there that everybody accuses Oscar Wilde of having syphilis, and he never did have syphilis. He had meningitis. Well, he might have had syphilis. We don't know. Um, I trust Oscar enough not to have had syphilis because I think he was quite. I, I would think that he that in his flamboyancy that he was quite a fastidious person and would have been horrified at um, at, at the um, sort of you know there there is a certain horror to syphilis if you've ever seen please do not google it and if you google it after this warning it's your own fault you know there is a certain horror to the way people look when you get syphilis and I can imagine him not wanting to deal with that horror no because Oscar Wilde had good hair he did have good hair, very good hair. Yeah, he wouldn't want to mess with that shit. No. No. And also, and also, he had a very good nose as well. And you did lose your nose if you had syphilis. But he had great hair. Yes, not as great as your hair, Brian. No, no. I mean, come on, let's be real. You know. But it was Irish and amazing, nonetheless. Yes, he, he did have good hair. So look that up, people. You can Google images of Oscar Wilde's hair. He had great hair. He did have great hair. I'm looking at a picture of Oscar Wilde right now, and he has fantastic hair. He did. But he was dragged into Temple. Um, Chapel. Yes. yes. He was dragged he was into the chapel. Into the well, well, no, he wasn't dragged. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't dragged there. He was forced to go there. He was probably marched in there. And then he was ill with dysentery because uh, prison was hell back then and you didn't get a very good balanced diet and if you got a bad stomach, it usually ended in dysentery. So, And he was never the same after his imprisonment, which nobody would be, but it was kind of his own fault that he that he got imprisoned for gross indecency. Do you know how, he, how that came about? It was pretty gross and indecent, I know that. Um, no, what he what um, is that he had um, he'd sued um, Douglas's father for um, claiming that he was a sodomite on a card, and it was found in um, his favour, uh, not in Oscar Wilde's favour, in uh, in oh Boise's father's favour. And um, that's how he ended up being put on trial. And they used the preface for Dorian Gray, which, yeah, that would get you into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how he ended up in prison. 
Yeah. You know, I know my I know my history, and history isn't always pleasant. Exactly. But we're going into the cha- uh, into the uh, chapel now because Richard Smoley is. You're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who is um, more scholarly and worldly on world religions and ancient religions and mysticism and esotericism and inner Christianity. And, uh, you know, i got to be honest. I'm going to tell them right up front that I'm an atheist. There's nothing wrong with that. No, that's what I mean. I want to get us kicked off on the right foot. Just so we know, that, and you can respect someone you don't agree with on religion, which I do because I'm a big fan of Smoley. So uh, let me get this uh, magic interview box ready. It's the magic interview box. And Lauren? Yes? Flip the switch. All right, Lauren, are you ready for this? I am indeed. Because, first off, I, I don't know how we do it. I don't know why these people who are so smart want to talk to me. It's they want to talk to me, not you, Brian. I'm convinced that's it. But we have an absolute... Uh, we got the heavyweight champ tonight. I mean, I'm telling you. Richard Smoley is not only one of the most brilliant people you'll ever hear, but th- just the most fascinating and the most hypnotic sounding because <laughs> you, see, you see that laugh even the laugh is hypnotic i listen to so many of his lectures that uh richard smully is my own personal asmr and i i'm so thrilled now for those out there who don't know him and i don't think there's many because like i said he's superstar he is a prolific writer a philosopher a historian, um, would it be fair to call you an esotericist? Yes. An esotericist, see that, Lauren? And mm-hmm. among his, what, 357,000 books that you've written? Uh, just 12. 12. Um, his new one is The Truth About Magic, and it is about occultism, mysticism, magic, religion, and it's so perfectly done. It's, I like to call this a bite-sized portion to jump into the mind of Richard Smoley. So, ladies and gentlemen, and Lauren, please welcome the one and only personal hero of mine, Richard Smoley. Welcome to Transatlantic History Ramblings. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that, and thank you so much for that uh, extremely generous uh, introduction. Um, I appreciate it very much, uh, and I also appreciate your uh, discussion of the truth about magic, which is a book. It also is available as an audio and video series on Vimeo, if you prefer to uh, have access to it that way. The content is just about identical. The book is an edit of the, the transcripts of the uh, lectures I gave. This was uh, in March of 2020. Um, I went to New York, New Jersey, just as COVID was hitting, um, and uh, fortunately was spared that. But anyway, you, you, you introduced it, uh, in my view, very accurately, because it's meant to be a very basic um, ground-level introduction to a lot of subjects that people keep hearing about and 
find very, very little accurate or clear information about. Uh, that would include things like magic, astrology, Atlantis. Uh, I even have a chapter on um, psychedelic drugs, which is at times have been used to um, uh, create spiritual or uh, stimulate spiritual consciousness. So the idea was to give something for somebody who had uh, has no idea about these uh, subjects at all and wants to know at least a little bit about them. Well, I also think it is one of the most brilliant marketing tools ever because you are such a fascinating person and such a brilliant writer. And I'm not just blowing smoke. This is, the, the you know, I believe this, that people are going to read this and say, all right, now I got 12 more books I got to buy because I got to get everything this guy wrote. Thank you. And people, Amazon.com. Uh, what's your website? We're going to give it at the end, too, but right away I want people to be able to write it down. Uh, innerchristianity.com, I-N-N-E-R, Christianity.com, or richardsmoley.com, uh, all run together. My um, The site is identical. Inner Christianity is the title of one of my books. And I, I kind of want to start there really quickly because this proves how you don't, always have to be on the exact same belief system with someone to really admire them and respect them because anybody who listens to this show knows I am a self-proclaimed and and, and open atheist and yet Mm -hmm. I am so fascinated by your works and your philosophy and theories on inner Christianity and on occultism Mm -hmm. that you know I think a lot of people won't cross lines to what they don't believe (laughs) Mm-hmm, to learn mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's part of your brilliance that you can reach out to someone like me and make it resonate yeah, yeah I mean I don't know of course about your beliefs but a, a lot of people who are atheists are atheists because they don't believe in a specific concept of God or a specific uh attitude even toward God the idea of whether uh, God is as a big man in the sky and a lot of these concepts are very primitive and it's because most people uh, need very simple concepts in order to function Uh, but when they get uh, blown up into uh, you know theologies that really make no sense uh, which mainstream Christianity uh, mainstream Christianity uh, uh, does not make sense theologically. I can go into that or not, but that's just a simple fact. So once you realize that, you you say, "Wow, this is all bunk," and I, I and I don't have anything to turn to. So I mean, whether that explains your background or not, of course I don't know. But there's a lot of atheism there because uh, there's a lot of very simplistic concepts of God, the divine, the universe, and so on. And, and it's it, it's so amazing that you are how would I say I'm trying to say this in the most respectful way because it's sincere and it's a compliment for me mm-hmm. you are the thinking Christian's best friend and worst nightmare at the same time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well yeah I mean the for one thing mainstream Christian theology uh, 
you know, uh, God came, got mad at the human race because someone ate a piece of fruit in Armenia 6,000 years ago and damned everybody to hell, and then he kind of felt bad about it, so he sent a part of himself down here to earth and had it tortured to death, which somehow made it all right, except not really, because unless you believe the story, you're going to go to hell anyway. That is standard Christian doctrine in a very um, sardonic uh, nutshell, but that's basically what it is. And, so, and, you know, put that way, it's utterly ridiculous. Um, and people are finding this and figuring this out, or, or many of them have already known this, and they're no longer scared uh, to say that, that it's ridiculous. And uh, so in that case, yes, in terms of conventional Christian theology, I, I, you know, we have to face this. And um, a, a lot of religion is um, losing ground because the more liberal clergy, the mainstream churches, realize this is true. Uh, they, uh, I, I meet uh, clergymen, uh, like mainstream Protestant clergymen, have more trouble with faith than I do. Uh, and even though they don't admit it, uh, they, somehow the vibe gets out and the church is empty. Uh, the fundamentalists believe this and are supposed to but um, it's such a ridiculous doctrine that uh, you know you can only believe it under fear of, of punishment from hell or from uh, your uh, authoritarian parents or whatever uh, the Catholics I don't think the Catholics uh, clergy I don't think they believe a great deal of this either but Catholicism has come to this point where, as far as I can see, it's, uh, it's just a matter of go to Mass and vote against abortion and you'll be okay. So those are, those are, those are the main branches of Christianity, and um, they're all kind of sad. You know, okay, now, folks, you got to know something about this guy. Can I call you Richard? Is that okay? Sure, of course. All right. Now, Richard, you not only went to Harvard, you went to Oxford after that. How difficult was it being in those schools when you were smarter than all of your professors, okay? <laughs> well, there are a lot of brilliant people there, uh, so that really isn't uh, the case. There were some really extraordinarily brilliant people there uh, whom I learned from. Uh, Oxford is a bit of more of a dry experience. I mean, there are people there who are kind of very learned, but it was um, very arid. And um, uh, in terms of, uh, and uh, there's no uh, anything in the mainstream uh parts of the university that had much to do with um, religion or spirituality. I was uh, in college in the 70s, so there were a lot of meditation groups, yoga groups, things things around um, um, these uh, activities as extracurriculars, but there was nothing in um, really in uh, academia as such that showed much interest in this. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was a, an extra... Well, it was really only became an extracurricular interest uh, toward the later part of my uh, university education, uh, although I had been interested in it uh, a long time before when I was younger. So, yeah, it's uh, the people are, are very intelligent, but there's not a lot of intellectual liberty there beyond a certain type of... Um, consensus. 
I'm not I'm not even going to touch the whole political side of it because, uh, frankly, um, I've heard enough of it. Yeah. But it, you know, you better you better be kind of a, a, a skeptical materialist. Um, or act like one, or write like one, um, if you're in most disciplines in uh, universities. I think that's changing a little bit, but uh, I think a lot of that rigidity is still there. Plus, you were university in the 70s. That explains the chapter on psychedelic drugs. That's all I'm saying about that. (laughs) Well, actually, that came later. Oh, okay. uh, We can go into that if you like. Oh, we will, but... Lauren is actually in university now working on her master's. And I know you're also a world historian on religions and especially Christianity. Lauren and I were just having a great conversation about um, Catholicism in the Middle Ages. Lauren, why don't you uh, why don't you ask Richard about that? Oh, it was we were talking about the debates of the Eucharist and about the um, the turmoil that there was about how to. Um, how to interpret the Eucharist, whether it was an interpretation, whether it was um, a sort of, whether it was a literal thing where you did indeed, where the the wafer turned into the flesh of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ, or whether it was just symbolic. And it was something that um, carried on for a very long time and was part of the debates that came up uh, um, around the Reformation when it did finally change. so I was just thinking, what do, what are your thoughts on the the debates around the Eucharist that um, happened during the medieval period, and then were revived again during the English Reformation? Well, uh, you know, it, the, the doctrine of the Catholic Church is transubstantiation. That is to say, uh, the the uh, bread and wine are transubstantiated. That is, they actually become the uh, substance um, of the body and blood of Christ. Now, this, of course, is um, a bit problematic because it doesn't turn into literal flesh and blood, which just would be loathsome. Um, So they had to kind of explain this in some kind of funny way. And they did it by um, mutating uh, the philosophy of Aristotle, which was being uh, brought into uh, Catholicism at that time by Aquinas and others. According to Aristotle's philosophy, there's something called essence. That is to say, what makes you essentially of this or that. The the classic thing is a human being is a rational animal. Uh, if, if you know a human being, well, we say it ourselves. If a person's in a coma, it's no longer rational. That you say, well, that person's a vegetable. So that's the essence. And then there are what are called the accidents. That is to say, uh, a human being could be uh, red-haired, but it's not essential that a human being is red-haired. Therefore, that's it's not an accident in in the way uh, we use the term now, but. The, the Catholic Church twisted this to say that well, the, the, it was it was essentially the body and blood of Christ, but the accidents, uh, as it were, the uh, secondary properties um, stayed the same as bread and wine. That is how they did it. Uh, this is not really what Aristotle meant. Um, so as I say, it's a twisting of Aristotle's thinking. Um, as far as my own personal opinion about it. Uh, I have to say, the original idea of the Eucharist uh, was symbolic, 
that is to say, no actual belief in the flesh and blood uh, in that sense uh, was originally intended. Um, but, it, you know, it gradually got uh, mutated as all theology did. And um, you know, then in Protestantism, when uh, Luther came up with his own version of it, which he called consubstantiation, and, you know, on and on. But um, you can actually see how the theology kind of has to twist things because uh, when they don't make sense, um, that's basically an example of what I was talking about. See, Lauren, isn't he badass? <laughs> he is, but I think there were a few people during the medieval period who wouldn't have thought the idea of consuming Christ's flesh to be repulsive because you do get these mystic women in these hagiographies that do some extreme things. Um, they do these uh, extreme uh, acts of abjection where um, one nun... Um, was cleaning, washing the feet of lepers, and after she'd washed their feet, she drank the water, the dirty water, and um, talks about um, yeah. this is quite this is quite disgusting. But she talks about how one of the scabs got stuck in her throat, but she swallowed it as if it was the Eucharist, as if it was the sweet flesh of the Lord. So yeah. <laughs> you do get. Um, yeah, yeah, there were there were definitely people who uh, who were uh, into that kind of thing, and I think I I just subsume it under one general rule about uh, human beings: if you can think of it, somebody's tried it. <laughs> Sometimes even if you think it's physically impossible, somebody's tried it. So that would definitely fall under that rubric. Yeah, it is. Um, I love that she told us about cleaning the f lepers' feet and drinking the water before she said, "Now this gets disgusting." <laughs> like that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's uh, that's just uh, that's in just introductory self mortification. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was even worse for me because I was reading it in Middle English. So you're you're sitting there and you're working out what it's trying to say, and then you're like, "Oh, oh no." <laughs> oh. <laughs> so the horror slowly dawns on you what you just read and oh and then you've got to sit in a lecture where the lecturer keeps bringing it up and you're going i'm going to be sick i'm going to be sick i'm going to be sick yeah yeah they, uh, they, uh, they were they were different people then um yeah. the past is I another country as somebody yeah. said i think i prefer marjorie kemp and her and her tears her. She'd have extreme fits of crying every time she thought about the passion, and um, mm -hmm. when she went to Calvary, she'd uh, she would break out in these intense fits of crying because she was just overwhelmed by the feelings that she was getting and everything. And I do recommend um, Marjorie Kemp. She is one of the mystic women. Well, she's not quite a mystic. But, well, she is because she does have a mystical marriage. But she is one of my favourite mystic women. Her and Julian of Norwich because, you know, it, it was quite a um, big thing during that period to um, announce the, the idea of divine love and that we didn't have to do anything to gain the love of God, that he loved us regardless of what we did. Now that, mm -hmm. what a segue that could be into um, the theology of love. Um, that's uh, one of your more recent works. Yes. That really... Um, um, 
set the internet on blaze, really. I mean, that became a really talked about book. Uh, yeah, well, it uh, it starts uh, with a premise that I've already given you, the idea that mainstream Christian theology is um, ridiculous in its uh, conventional form. Um, so then what isn't uh, ridiculous about it? And without uh, going into the full argument of the book, I have to say that A Course in Miracles, which is an extremely strange uh, text and came about in an extremely strange way, does present the only logical and rational Christian doctrine that has ever been uh, created, as far as I know. Now, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the Course, um, it was allegedly dictated by Jesus Christ um, during the 60s and 70s to a New York psychologist named Helen Shuckman who heard this voice in her head, this is a course of miracles, please take notes, and 1,200 pages later, it was finished, uh, first privately published, and then um, now it's sold over 3 million copies worldwide, I think the current number is 27 languages. Um, uh, whether it was dictated by Jesus Christ himself, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, there's no way you could prove it, because, no, it doesn't match the theology of the Bible, but even New Testament scholars say that the theology, even of the New Testament, may or may not have anything really to do with what Jesus himself taught. So you have no real criterion for uh, evaluating it. I think, you you know, you have to take it on its own authority. And um, The Course in Miracles views the fall in a very uh, different way. And the, there, that is to say, human life is problematic, um, and we all know that. Uh, and so what, where is this problem? In fact, I'm going to uh, give a lecture in August called um, What's Wrong With Everything, which will touch on some of this. And, of course, basically agrees more with Eastern philosophy than with Western in saying that this problem is cognitive rather than a matter of just sin. That is to say, there is some defect in our consciousness that uh, is problematic. And this defect in the consciousness is called the ego. It, uh, the ego is used in a lot of different ways, in uh, a lot of different contexts. But in the course's context, the ego is the part of uh, the mind that imagines it can be separate from God. And it, it, it sort of talked itself into this, and because it feels so isolated, terrified, um, it's insane, and it lashes out. All of us have this to one degree or another, or we wouldn't be here, uh, but it, it's totally a delusory uh, entity. And all you have to do to uh, see some reason in this is look at the news. People do crazy things all the time for no reason. People are, uh, not everybody, but there's a huge amount of just utterly pointless destruction and self-destruction. Um, that is not really the, f the function of um, sane individuals, uh, and even people who are not insane by any clinical standard uh, do incredibly crazy things. And th the world often seems like a crazy place. This is why. Um, and because 
we are basically living from a, a delusional concept of the world that does not have anything to do really uh, with what's going on. Now, uh, strangely enough, mainstream cognitive science is starting to pick up on this. Uh, and there's a very interesting book written called The Case Against Reality by a um, cognitive scientist named Donald Hoffman. He says, well, we don't perceive uh, most of what's out there because our perceptions are geared um, toward evolutionary survival. But I would go much further and say our whole concept even of evolutionary survival is a product of this ego, which does not see anything correctly and um, doesn't want to. The solution for that is forgiveness. That is to say, well, I'm not really seeing what's going on here. I really, I, I, I really just don't know what this is about. Um, so it's very, very foolish for me to get mad about it. And that's a very, very, very uh, brief discussion of it. But it does uh, bring in, uh, you know, the fact that God is totally love, and um, as. Um, you know, we were just saying, and um, it's our, you know, delusory desire to be separate from God and to perceive ourselves as separate from God that causes, that is called the fall or the separation. It's not a matter of sin. Um, it's just a matter of a very, very deep uh, sense of delusion. And this goes far deeper than any uh, psychological or psychiatric diagnosis. And I think this makes sense. I think this makes sense. I mean, it makes sense in, in the context of the world religions, uh, particularly, again, uh, the Eastern ones, where uh, a major theme is the illusoriness of the world as you normally see it. Um, Plato said something very similar. Um, and so this, uh, the idea that what we're actually seeing and reacting to is really just a bunch of shadows is very disturbing, but it can also be liberating in the sense that uh, you don't have to be upset about the things you think you're supposed to be upset about. Uh, and this, uh, you know, this could take us very, very far. But that's what a theology of love is about. So, by nobody, nobody's, nobody's going to hell. My theory about hell. I have two statements about hell. There is no hell, and the other is you can keep yourself in hell for as long as you like. Uh, and that's what many people do. Yeah, I call them Red Sox fans. <laughs> Where are you based? I'm, I'm, well, I'm in, I'm in New York, so I'm a Yankee guy. Okay. Okay. And I know yeah, you're originally somehow, from Connecticut, right? Yeah, yeah. When I lived in Massachusetts, I'm, I'm not a big ball uh, baseball sports fan anyway, so I don't have a lot of. Uh, 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 animus about it, but um, I figured um, there had to be some uh, yeah. some reason for <laughs> well, you know, for your comment. To be fair, if I was born and raised in Connecticut and lived in Massachusetts, I wouldn't be a sports fan either because I couldn't stand the Red Sox or the yeah, I like the Celtics are okay. <laughs> but <laughs> I want to go on to your fascination in esotericism. Where, you know. Where did it come from in a good uh, northeastern American boy? Where where did you where did you pick this up? Where did the fascination start, and what path led you to it? Okay, well, my father um, had been in the Navy for twenty years, and this was he joined the 
Navy in 1927. Um, so this was a very different Navy from um, what it is today. And he stayed in for, for uh, 20 years, including World War II. And he became interested in this kind of thing because in his travels around the world, years and years in China, for uh, uh, in those days, the uh, U.S. had a naval presence in China, that, uh, uh, which was in civil war, uh, and he just saw things he couldn't explain. Um, so he became very interested in, and read a lot of the uh, what we would call New Age literature that was available at the time, and uh, this was in the 60s, of Edgar Cayce and uh, things about Atlantis, and these books were lying around the house. And uh, I read them, and um, I found them absorbing, and they certainly piqued an interest in me. Uh, again, the idea that not everything is quite as... Um, simple or as um, ground level as it appears. Uh, the years I was um, at Harvard, I, I I really kind of just put the whole thing on, on hold. I mean, I, I didn't I, I didn't really pursue it very much because you know there's enough going on, especially you know in adolescence. Um, and toward the end of my years at Harvard, say around 1976, you know, there was a, a mystical bookshop on the edge of Harvard Square, and I started to uh, frequent it, and I started to buy some of those books and look into it. Uh, when I went to Oxford, I joined a group that studied the Kabbalah, the Jewish uh, mystical teaching, although it's been taught outside of Jewish contexts um, for um, approximately uh, 600 years. Um, as well, uh, and uh, that uh, introduced me to a number of people, a number of ideas that really got me started. Uh, in 1980, I moved to San Francisco, and of course there was a lot uh, going on there, and I did sample a good amount of it, uh, spiritual terms, um, and well, that's based. I, I eventually ended up working for an esoteric magazine called Gnosis, which was published between 85 and 99, and uh, eventually became editor of it, and on and on. Now, was, that the, was it an Omni-like magazine? No, it was okay. a very uh, small circulation magazine. It was uh, called a Journal of the Western Inner Traditions. And it had a very, very small but devoted following. Uh, to this day, if I go to like some conference or something, or, you know, people will, you know, come up to me, and the thing they're most likely to say is, "Oh, Richard Smalley, I loved Gnosis." <laughs> and this is over 20 years after it stopped publishing. Uh, it was founded by Jay Kinney, who was, among other things, an underground cartoonist. And he and I worked very closely together on it. Um, he and I even wrote a book together called Hidden Wisdom, A Guide to the Western Inner Traditions, which is, a, a, you know, uh, again, an entry-level thing, although that's written on a, well, uh, it, it, uh, let's say The Truth About Magic is written for a much more um, basic reading level. And Hidden Wisdom is a, you know, kind of a more or less, you know, to the intelligent, educated reader. Um, and, uh, you know, things progress from there. That reminds me, the, the, one of the most fascinating lectures of yours, and one I've, I admit I've had to watch at least a dozen times. And, and before I say this, I, this is going to be such a weird-sounding statement, but 
it's so weird that you sound just like yourself. Because I'm so used to listening to lectures. <laughs> to actually be talking yeah. and hearing that come at me is just so wild. Um, well, yeah. I mean, people have different voices. You know, like, my wife has a different voice for, for the children and the dog than she does for adults. So I talk pretty much like myself all the time, even for the dog and the, uh, the children, which I think perhaps makes me unusual. Well, it, it's, it's, it's amazing, because I'm like, it's so weird. I'm like, that's the voice. Um, but the lecture you did on the secret teachings of all ages, not the Manly P. Hall book, which we actually did a Manly Hall episode um, a couple months back. But um, a fascinating character. Incredibly fascinating character. But you did a lecture on the secret teachings of all ages. Again, not the Manly Hall book, but those not so openly talked about teachings and it, it's a, it's an incredible lecture obviously i'm not going to have you recite the lecture here because uh that would take up most of our time but people look this up it is phenomenal lecture but um that is to me that's what got me hooked on you and your writings and your and uh, your books and your lecture series that's the first one i saw too what was it about these secret teachings that just, I mean, because people will read them and get interested in fascinating, but you just dove so into them that it became, I'm going to take these secrets and tell you these secrets because they're so cool. <laughs> I mean, what was it? Mm-hmm, 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 was mm-hmm. it Blavatsky? I mean, what um, was the spark? Uh, Blavatsky, no, I, I, uh, I admire Blavatsky in many ways, but um, her writings, uh, I've never, never really drawn even uh, much. She, uh, she was obviously uh, an incredibly formidable figure, but um, writing really wasn't her strength. She, she wasn't a native speaker of English. It wasn't even her second language. So, and uh, people who, in those days, the late 19th century, uh, people wrote in incredibly florid, uh, over elaborate ways and the really great authors could do that it would be marvelous uh, people who weren't such great authors uh, it, it, uh, just made it sound cumbersome but uh, so it wasn't really Blavatsky uh, but um, I have worked with the Theosophical Society for what 16 years um, so uh, and the Theosophical Society is a very free form organization in that you can, you can, the idea is you can believe anything you want or nothing. Uh, in fact, in 1925, they published a, um, they, they passed a freedom of thought resolution saying absolutely nobody could ever be thrown out of the Theosophical Society for either believing or not believing in anything. So um, that's odd. Uh, a lot of... Because Lauren once know, told I mean, me are, I had a freedom from thought philosophy, Lauren said. <laughs> Well, a Krishnamurti or somebody yeah. like that would, would uh, say that's a good thing. Um, but in any case, uh, I mean, theosophists believe in a lot of occult New Agey things, mostly. Um, they believe in karma, reincarnation, that kind of thing. They used to promote vegetarianism a lot more stridently than they do now, which is fine with me because I've, I've never been a vegetarian. Um, but it's been it's been really quite a seminal thing. When Theosophical Society was started in 1875, uh, nobody in the West believed in reincarnation. 
except a few people who were, um, uh, you know, had read it in uh, Plato's dialogues, who were obviously very learned. Today, um, and these figures have been pretty consistent over the last couple of decades, someplace between 20 and 25 percent of the U.S. population believes in reincarnation. Uh, and, you know, the Theosophical Society brought that idea uh, and was responsible for disseminating it. Whether you believe in reincarnation or not uh, is quite another matter, but uh, it was extremely influential in ways like that. Oh, you know what else the Theosophists introduced uh, to America? What's that? Cremation. Cremation. All right, I have um, a little story about cre- cremation for a second. Totally okay. off topic, but it just reminded me. Mm-hmm. Several years ago, my best friend had passed away after suffering from a, a pretty bad illness. And mm-hmm. when I went to his his funeral, they had a sign out front that actually just said, Cremation with Confidence. And oh. I'm convinced that's the only time I believe there might have been an afterlife, because I'm like, Jeff made that sign and put that there for me to laugh at. <laughs> So, confidence. (laughs) But I also want to say whether or not you believe in reincarnation, let's play a quick little game. You could be reincarnated. Do you want to come back as a person or or an animal or something else? And if so, what? Uh, I don't want to come back here at all. you know, this world isn't that great. I mean, I, I really, I mean, this. I, I'm answering totally honestly. Um, you know, I really don't want to come back again. Um, I, I am hopeful that there are many other planes of life and uh, uh, other than the ones we see in our um, current, you know, dimensional reality. And um, uh, I hope there's one that's better that uh, I might be able to get to. Um, uh that is what I would. I, I don't really want to be reborn as anything. Uh, I don't want to come back as <laughs> anything. I don't want to come back as a president. I don't want to come back as a movie star, uh, 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 scientific genius, or anything. Um, you know, I'm. You know, I, I. You know, I bought the ticket. As far as life is concerned, like this life. You know, I bought the ticket, and I'm willing to take the ride. But um, I'm not likely to want to buy a ticket um, a second time around. You really to this Disneyland that we call the world. You really you wouldn't want to come back as like, like uh, maybe like a zoo monkey that just has to lay around and pick some fleas and get food thrown at you because I think that would be a pretty cool life. That would be a cool yeah. life, Brian. I think uh, I think I'll pass. I think I'll pass. I think although you, although I you, think, you make it sound very tempting. Yeah. I think I'd rather come back as a well looked after family pet. Yeah, they get fed too. See, I'm all about getting I fed. Don't think... I don't know. No, I don't. Uh, you know, I mean, it's fine. I'm, uh, you know, I don't. Uh, you know, I hope to live to a, a good, healthy old age, and you know, see my sons grow up to something, grow up to be something like decent human beings. But um, I don't think I would like to come back again. <laughs> that's the that's the most In honest answer form. I've ever heard anybody give. Um, well, I mean, you know, life is a mixed, it's always going to be a mixed bag, right? Uh, in fact, one of the old esoteric names for Earth or this plane of existence was the mixedus orbis, the mixed globe, meaning 
it's a mixture of good and evil. And, you know, I don't know anything about you, uh, either of you, but I can say infallibly, without any fear of refutation or contradiction, that you've known some good and some evil in your life. So have I, so have the other 7 billion or 8 billion of us. Am I wrong? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's uh, uh, it's just, you know, some people seem really lucky. They, they go through life uh, uh, totally blessed, but even they have, you know, their, their sorrows and heartbreaks. Other people uh, seem uh, just to go from misery to misery, but even they have their joys. Why this mixture seems so... Uh, varying is, you know, another big topic, but I think we have to face the fact that, yeah, this is the way it is for all of us. What is it we wanted, what does the book of Genesis say? Human race wanted to know good and evil, so here it is. I mean, it's what it says in the Bible, you know. Uh, you're going to have to go down here, uh, okay, you, you, should, you asked for knowing good and evil, you're going to have to come down here, you're going to get some coats of skin, um, which is our fleshly bodies, and it's going to hurt have to have babies, and you're going to have to work hard for a living. And that all came true. We can't wish to know good and evil, and we got our wish, collectively as a human race. Doesn't that make sense? It does, and it, it's um, kind of terrifying when you say it that way. <laughs> well... Um, you know, as I, as I suggested, uh, both in my books and you know, even in this conversation, that's not the whole picture, but it is a picture of, uh, you know, this particular, um, shall we say, slice of uh, reality. Uh, we wanted to know what it's like, so we got to see what it was like. Um, fair enough. Yeah. You know, be careful what you asked for. That's a good point. And you don't want to do it again. We've established that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm willing to play an honorable role. I'm here. I'm uh, trying to be a, a good, productive person. Uh, you know, behave in a decent way. But well, I don't know. Uh, or, or let's see. I don't see a lot that would want to tempt me back around a second time. But um, who knows how these things work? I think. Um, you know, I think the you know the afterlife, other realities are different realities if you assume they exist and i'm not asking you to but if they they exist they're not this reality yet we can only picture them in terms of this reality right we can only Uh, perceive what we can perceive you know so i mean everything even the most bizarre science fiction world um you know is basically an altered world of ours um, here's a here's a uh, here's a thought exercise. See if you can do this. Can you imagine a color you've never seen? No. No. I certainly can't. I certainly can't. Um, I mean, I've asked people this question more than once, and well, sometimes they will actually say, "Well, I had this kind of really strange dream in which I saw colors that were really like our colors." Well. <laughs> well, then you saw that, them. Even they. <laughs> Yeah, they saw them. So, you know, I, I just find it, uh, the, uh, the idea, I mean, we know there are colors we can't see. Um, you know, the infrareds and ultraviolets, bees and other things. I simply can't, you know, I just can't imagine it. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's one way of just saying we're, we're kind of con- conceptually limited by our kind of sensory apparatus. So worlds beyond worlds beyond worlds. Um, yeah, we're going to have our little pictures of them, but we have to admit that they're just um, 
rather inaccurate little pictures. Yeah, our own universe is just so vast that we can't comprehend it. How can we comprehend different yeah, planes of reality and, and existence? Yeah, yeah. This is just one. This universe is just one slice of it. And of course, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not a big science fan. Uh, I certainly admire uh, a lot of things they've done, like for example, the COVID vaccine. But um, you know, and, and so when they start talking about multiverses and universes beyond this one and other universes beyond black holes. Um, I really don't know what to make of it. I, I'm not sure they're doing anything more than um, speculating with equations. And, and it's funny because science keeps progressing, we should say. Um, and I, I am a firm believer in a f- science fanatic and I love reading science journals and i i've had a couple Mm -hmm. you know great physicists on the show but like you said it it is it's problematic to comprehend Mm -hmm. and and that's i I always tell them that blows me away that that they comprehend these things that my brain doesn't even want to wrap around right right well the other thing about science um that people forget is that it is a method Right, it's a method of framing hypotheses, testing, and so on, so on. Uh, that is science. The conclusions of science, what it happens to, to uh, have uh, come up with at this point in time, is always provisional. Uh, uh, you know, if you uh, look at the scientific beliefs of people 300 years ago, a, a lot of them are just laughable. Don't you think 300 years from now, assuming? everything continues as is, um, a lot of our beliefs are going to be considered um, ridiculous and old-fashioned. So science progresses. In fact, Karl Popper was one of the most uh, uh, influential philosophers of science in the uh, 20th century said, you know, if you you think you've got a a definitive answer, you've given up the game. Well, and see, that's that's one of the interesting things I find about um, organized religion, I should say, because... Like you said, 300 years ago, what we believed as scientific evidence, in fact, we've, you know, disproven or figured out more and explained more and realized more, and yet a lot of basis in religion refuse to change with knowledge, which is what, which is what, one of the things I really admire and respect about your work is that you say, you know, we learn and we evolve with our learning. So you don't mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. stick so strictly mm-hmm. to doctrine, right? How right. does well, that how does that um, how does that play in a religious community? In your experience, um, I don't belong to any religious communities. I, you know, I just don't really like going to church. Um, I I would rather stay home and sleep late, which is what I mostly do on Sunday morning or drink coffee or something. I just don't get anything out of it. I, I'm willing to say uh, that this is a, a matter of purely personal taste. Other other people find um, belonging to a kind of a spiritual community, people they know and see every week to be very, very um, supportive and healthy. And um, I'm certainly not going to fault them for that, but I have to say it's never really spoken very much to me. Um, <laughs> I had a very cynical friend <laughs> in college, and um, he uh, 
Uh, he once said, in heaven you don't have to go to church, but in hell you do. <laughs> that is a great line, and you should just take it as God your own from now on. God punished him for that because he later converted to Catholicism. Oh, that is punishment. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I guess that kind of, uh, just my uh, mentioning that line kind of uh, sums up something about my attitude toward uh, conventional religion. And as I say, there are people who love it and, and benefit from it. Um, it's not for me to say they don't or shouldn't. It's just a, a matter of personal taste. Yeah, and, and it, the, the the problem with it is uh, so much of it will preach hatred towards anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's my issue. So we should talk oh, about more yeah, fun yeah, things. I, I, <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, well, it's a, here's a variant of uh, Gresham's Law and Economics. You know, bad religion drives out good. Um, and that seems to be what's happening in the United States today. Uh, that's not the only thing that's happening on the religious scene, but um, you know the religious right has been so obnoxious, uh, particularly in the last ten years, that um, a lot of people are are just turning away from it. And um, I don't know how they feel about it. I think um, most of them, the, the real leaders think, uh, you know, hey, as long as I got my bucks and my followers, I don't, you know, I don't really care. But um, uh, I think there are a lot of people who are seriously uh, disaffected with religion because of that. That's not, as I say, that's not the only thing that's happening. Uh, but um, right-wing religion is turning a lot of people off against religion. And people often, listen for this yourself, um, listen for this yourself. Um, uh, you know, people will often use the word Christian in a kind of contemptuous way. Oh, well, he's a Christian, you know. And, uh, you know, he, it usually means a Christian of the most obnoxious kind. But it's gotten to the point where the term Christian has actually become um, almost kind of a slur. That's how far it's deteriorated. Uh, because, you know, what does it usually mean? It's like, um, you know, what are you, like, um, uh, 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 Homer Simpson's next-door neighbor or something like that? Is that what means, uh, you think being a Christian is about? Or an apologist. No. You know. What'd you say? Or an apologist or a Bible literalist. Right, right, right. And, um, well, as, you know, I said in more than one book, but going back as far as the third century, Origen, who's by all accounts the most learned of the church fathers, um, uh, said, I mean, he wrote this, said, you know, who's stupid enough to believe that God planted a garden in the east like some farmer? Um, no, these things are pointing through other mysteries. He also went out to say, even the Gospels are not completely literally true, uh, because some of them do. Con some of them are historical facts. Others are things um, that uh, never happened, but um, have a deeper symbolic meaning. Now he was writing this. This is a church father writing this in 230 A.D. thereabouts. Um, so that was always known. Uh, but uh, it was pushed more and more into the background uh, by ecclesiastical politics. 
Well, it's funny. In America, we want to separate church and state, but as you just said, dating as far back as you can go, politics has always played such a major role in religion. That's what poisons it. Well, I don't know, well, because in Britain, we we our politics and religion are mixed. And we have had our problems, but it seems to be going okay now. Yeah, well, it's, it's not necessarily... Uh, a problem. But the other thing about politics is um, politics starts when there, whenever there are uh, more than one person in a room, and sometimes not even that many, because <laughs> politics is basically about human interaction. Um, you know, if you a bunch of people are in the same office, the same factory every day. Uh, for most of the week, um, yeah, relations are going to get developed. Power structures, affections, alliances, enmities. Um, here's my personal eleventh commandment, and I don't always break. I don't always. Sometimes I end up breaking it, but I usually try not to. Do not make unnecessary enemies. That's a good one. Not easy to think about. Do a it. podcast. Well, that that may be the case, um, and it's. Uh, but as I said, unnecessary enemies, you know. And sometimes <laughs> people are going to hate your guts for whatever reason, and um, you know uh, that's uh, you know it's part of life. But um, uh, uh, avoid creating as many <laughs> as you can. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's funny. I wanted to bring up it, it, making enemies, no matter what. Sometimes. You wrote a book on Nostradamus. Mm -hmm. And what I found so incredible about the book is I have seen people who were Nostradamus believers criticize you for the way you treated him, and then people who Mm -hmm. were non-Nostradamus believers criticize you for the way you treated him. Well, that that must mean I got it right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I mean, I said in this book flat out, and I'll say it again, I would not base my expectation of the future on anything that Nostradamus said or is imagined to have said. In fact, I also said in that book, I don't believe in prophecy um, because um, prophecies for the most part just haven't come true. Uh, this Nostradamus, many of those in the Bible, uh, you can find as many as you want out there. Most of them simply haven't come true or even come close to the truth. So I, I don't believe in prophecies uh, for my own self. I think the future, as I've shown in that book, The Truth About Magic, I think at times you can get glimpses of the future. Um, you know, if, um, well, if for some reason it's important or necessary, but the, the business of uh, professional prophesying, uh, well, uh, you know, maybe in, in uh, Judea in, in 600 B.C. it was it was a good thing to do, but um, I don't really see it now. Yeah, and I just love that I, I've actually seen criticism where people are like, oh, he, he poo-pooed Nostradamus as, as a prophet, and then other people saying, he gave Nostradamus credit as a prophet. I'm like, people are going to be mad. People are going to read into whatever they want to read into something. Yeah. Well, the other thing with Nostradamus is, you know, if you really want to understand his prophecies, um, you really have to take into context uh, when and where he said them. I mean, the most famous instance is Hister, H-I-S-T-E-R, uh, which uh, uh, no less a personage than Eva Goebbels 
uh, recognized as uh, possibly relating to Hitler. Um, but in all likelihood, it does not, because the Ister River, also known as the Danube, is the main river of Austria, and Austria was the most powerful country in Europe of that time. So it's much more likely that he was talking about Austria, the Habsburg Empire, than he was about some imagined dictator, um, you know, centuries later. Well, how exciting is this? You know, who cares? Who cares about, you know, the Habsburg Empire in 1560? It's not glamorous. You're not going to sell any books with that. Um, so, you know, you, you, and he was vague enough so that you could um, you could spin a lot of things uh, around his uh, his prophecies. And he couldn't get arrested uh, at the time for writing about things going on. Right. Well, exactly. And that's it. I mean, he had to write in very, very cryptic terms uh, because it was very, very dangerous um, to be involved in this. I mean, he was lucky because Catherine de' Medici, who was Queen of France at the time, really loved this occult stuff and kind of took him under her wing. But if it had been under a different monarch, um, his fate could have been very different. I always loved what Christopher Hitchens said that, uh, oh, so he could foresee and predict the rise of Hitler, but he couldn't spell it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot of version of it. But, um, you know, and uh, so, yeah, I've actually, you know, I try to be, you know, as intellectually honest as I can be. I'm not, not, uh, you know, I'm talking about esotericism. I'm talking about mystical, paranormal things, uh, and I don't discount them entirely i think um there's a well i think there's a lot of scientific hard scientific evidence on behalf of um you know human psychic powers uh but that doesn't mean accepting everything um you know wholesale there's there's a method of uh, well a certain amount of discrimination also knowing who you can say what to um the whole theme of secrecy and esotericism has a lot to do with that. It's not like, um, you know, it's not, it's not like the secret formula for Coca-Cola or something like that. It's like, you know, who are you going to tell this about? Um, <laughs> a lot of people, for example, who have, um, well, a lot of people see dead relatives soon after they're, they're deceased. <laughs> this is this is really pretty common. Um, and a lot of them, won't say anything to anybody because they very correctly fear they'll be just be called crazy or laughed at. Uh, but enough people see dead relatives and interact with them in kind of meaningful and non-imaginary ways that, you know, you have to, I, I have to give some credence to it. Um, but I also, uh, if I were uh, one of those people, I would um, know, uh, think very carefully about who I should keep my mouth shut in front of. Yeah, but you could also tell, you know, a lot of those experiences are your own. We don't understand the full function of our own brains yet. Right. So, I mean, part Mm. of the grieving process could be for our own minds to conceive these people there for us as a coping mechanism or a healing mechanism. Not necessarily, you know, paranormal. And you know, it it could be. We don't know. That's the thing I love about what you're saying is, I don't claim because we don't know. But there's there's mm -hmm. evidence to point here, and this is what it could be. 
Well, then there's the fact of um, it could some of these could well be manufactured um, out of the minds of, of people in severe grief, but it's certainly logically um, fallacious to say that because some are, all are. And that is where the reductionists uh, really uh, fall down. Uh, yes, UFO sightings. Yeah, a lot of them are weather balloons or the planet Venus uh, or whatever uh, misidentified. But uh, that doesn't mean all of them are. Um, and and the whole the, the blanket like um, reactionary skeptic who uh, just says yeah it can all be explained away uh, you know by uh, uh, you know their basically eighth grade notion of science um, I think they're wrong. Well, that's the thing. I always tell, I always tell people I'm a skeptic, and I'm a very proud skeptic. But I'm a real skeptic. I'm not this modern day version of a skeptic who's really not a skeptic. They're just a debunker. Yeah, well, I'm more like there's a lot in that. Like Houdini said, people want to credit Houdini as this monster, this master debunker, but in reality, Houdini was looking to find something. He got mad at the frauds and decided to expose them all and make it made it a campaign to go after them. But the reason was because he was looking for it to be real. He didn't close his right. mind off to the possibility. Right. Right. And then you have to, um, well, uh, official attitudes toward UFOs are uh, changing for reasons that we probably don't really understand. That is to say, uh, the aerospace authorities are grudgingly starting to admit or let this information out that, yes, there are such things in a way that they were not doing uh, 10 years ago. Um, and then there are all these UFO debunkers who've been around uh, basically since UFOs started to be uh, reported. Well, uh, are they are they genuine? Some of them, I believe, uh, were paid by a government who wanted to keep the public from believing in UFOs out of fear of um, you know some kind of public panic, and that was the policy of the U.S. government until very very soon, uh, very very recently. Um, so a lot of these debunkers have their own agendas. Uh, the, the idea that, uh, and they often have, um, you know, they, they often kind of tout uh, rather uh, flimsy scientific credentials, but uh, they have they have as many agendas as, um, you know, the, the guy does who's, who's building a replica of Noah's Ark in Indiana. That's another story, the guy building Noah's Ark in Indiana. <laughs> well, I'd like to see it. I, I really would, because he did actually build it to scale. I mean, uh, do I believe, well, do I believe in, in the, the story of the flood as given in the Bible? Uh, not literally, but I, the, uh, there are certain um, um, kind of principles of sacred geometry that are supposed to be illustrated in um, the very specific dimensions of Noah's Ark. And if someone's got, actually built, you know, a, an accurate life-size replica, I might actually learn something from it, not, not about, you know, not that the dinosaurs died in the flood or anything like that, but um, uh, I mean, that, there's a whole science of sacred geometry and proportion, and yeah, I, I may go visit that Noah's Ark uh, if it's not too far away from me. Um, and see, that's that's it. Uh, you know, it, it, you either have to believe it on the literal level, or you, uh, or you have to believe not believe it at all. Um, uh, I mean, the flood myth, by the way, is one of, is is just about the most universal myth in um, the world. 
Uh, and you really have to ask something about, well, it's in China, the Greeks had a flood myth like that in the Bible, the Aztecs, um, you know, this is incredibly far flung. What, uh, why is it? Um, and I, I'm not proposing I have an answer, um, but it's, uh, it is an incredibly uh, widespread myth. Uh, well, you know, Plato, Plato quotes an Egyptian priest in one of his dialogues. He said, it's their children because you know of one flood only. But in reality, there have been many destructions of humanity by fires and floods and any number of other causes. So <laughs> maybe that points to something. And I, you know, the and, yeah. the whole um, hidden uh, geometry in physics always fascinates me. With something like in Florida with the Coral Castle, you know, what did he know to be able to construct this? What was what's that? I don't even know what that is. Oh, the Coral Castle, the man who yeah. built built uh, built by hand, moving all these like incredibly huge stones, and built a castle for himself. Oh, really? I'll have to look it up on the internet. I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. You'd, you'd love it. Uh, you'll probably actually end up writing a book about it, <laughs> knowing how you are. <laughs> so, of all the topics you've written about and all the people you've studied, and from the mysticism mm-hmm. and the occultism and um, the Kabbalah and Christianity and, and, and Hinduism and Buddhism, what has been... Your favorite, I mean, not to say, you know, no one has a favorite child, but what was the one that really, you know, got your juices going or still does, the one that you find the most interesting? Well, I think of all the figures, um, I think probably uh, Gurdjieff uh, remains the one that I find most uh, fascinating. I once got on a, uh, uh, this was like uh, for, for some alumni thing they, they sent you know this kind of form for you know what are an alumni up to now and it was a very elaborate form and you know who's the person uh, you most admire so i wrote gi gurdjieff and uh, i probably was the only one in my class to have written that um not that i uh, bothered to find out but um he was a um without going into a huge amount he was a uh, Greco-Armenian spiritual teacher. He died in 1949. He left uh, a body of work, teachings, uh, writings, uh, and there's an enormous amount out him. There's a film about his early life called Meetings with Remarkable Men, which is not a Hollywood vulgarization. It was made under the direction of one of his senior pupils, and it is a, a serious attempt not only to convey his autobiography, but convey some of the ideas he did so if you want a, a glimpse of what Gurdjieff was like um, that film is probably a good place to start anyway he uh, you know he basically said that man is asleep uh, and the reason we're asleep is uh, you know as we put it uh, we could put it the mind and the emotions and the body have only are only very very um, tenuously connected that is to say, uh, you do one thing while you're thinking of another. You walk into a room and you forgot why you came. So everybody's going around in the sleep, and the only way to awaken is, and there are certain specific practices for this, uh, uh, whereby um, uh, you can kind of unify these centers as you cause them, and this itself would um, help lead to higher consciousness. I think there's a great deal of truth in that, and um, 
the practices and meditations he taught, I think, were very, uh, were very effective. So I guess I would pick him. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but me, the one that had all the crazy, funky dances? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> they were, uh, they were uh, they're also meant to illustrate uh, sacred principles. And um, I did the movement. They're called movements, the movements. Uh, I did them. I was in a class for, um, for them for two or three years, and um, I liked them. They're extraordinarily difficult because you are supposed to keep one rhythm with your arms, uh, another rhythm with your feet, uh, yet another uh, rhythm with your hand, uh, all while executing some very, very complicated dance movements. Uh, this w- was, according to him, meant to illustrate certain sacred principles, but it was also meant this kind of uh, requirement from kind of a super attention just to be able to do this was a way of uh, uh leading toward the unification that he was talking about. Again, the meetings with remarkable men um, has uh, a demonstration of the movements uh, at the very end of it. And um, there's a real demonstration. It's not a, these are real advanced practitioners of the movements, not, um, you know, somebody from a central casting dance. Well, it would definitely focus the mind because those moves are crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, as I say, I, I, uh, I enjoy doing them. Um, I did not notice that I did not say I ever did them well, but um, I did find them uh, stimulating. We just assumed you did them well, because you do everything well. <laughs> well, you're very kind to say so. Um, but Now, we will wrap up soon, because I know I'm taking up so much of your time, because I would do a 12-hour episode with you, because I have like a billion questions. <laughs> so first is... <laughs> Will you agree to come back on at some point so we can continue the talk sure. and talk more and promote sure. more books? Because you're going to have about another 15, sure. I know. Well, I, you know, at, at, at present I have you know some ideas germinating, but I'm actually not working on one right now. So, But, yeah, probably. Yeah. And so before we go on to our final round of questions, uh, give the information again so people can go get these books, get the teachings, watch your lectures, um, anything you want to plug. Okay. Do it now. Let's, uh, let's get that okay. info out. Well, I, uh, yeah, well, uh, you could, there are a lot of my lectures, most of them given at the Theosophical Society that are up on YouTube, and um, you could binge watch me if uh, uh, you so chose. So there's that. Um, my latest book is called The Truth About Magic. And it's available on Amazon and uh, the usual sources. It's uh, also available on Vimeo as a video and or audio uh, versions. They're all, the content is, is basically identical. Uh, so it's the truth about magic. Um, my uh, website is uh, innerchristianity.com, and uh, people can contact me that way. All right. And Lauren, do you have a, a question before I go on to a couple final ones that I have? No, it's just been very interesting to listen. Oh, shit. Lauren gets so into, like, listening to the guests, she forgets she's hosting at times. It's a great, and I, I love that about her, because <laughs> me and her are both researchers and and, and want to learn so much mm-hmm. that you just forget, and you just, and especially with you, because like I said, I listen to your lectures all the time, so now I keep having to remind myself to throw in something and add a question, because I just want to listen to you. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, that's kind of you. Here come the tough questions. First one, Pluto, is it a planet or not? Well, of course, that's an astronomical question. 
Um, but I will say this, in the Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic tree of life, which you've undoubtedly seen, uh, the ten spheres or spherot, uh, as they're called in uh, Hebrew, are all associated with planets. Uh, and I can give, I can give you a rundown, but I, I won't. Uh, and then there's a mysterious thing called da'at, which literally means knowledge. It's at a particular point in the tree of life. And it's not really a sphera. It's not one of the other ten. It's even sometimes called a non-sphera. And guess what planet's associated with? Pluto. So it's a, Pluto is a non-planet in the way that da'at is a non-sphera. How's that? That's a good answer. I'll take it. In other words, Pluto's yeah, planet. I'm not an, I'm, yeah, I am not a, I'm not a... Uh, an astronomer, um, but uh, uh, anyway, that's that's my little take on that. The other one is now you have taught and spread these um, philosophies in New York, Massachusetts, San Francisco, and I believe Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How is Tennessee on that list? Because that just seems so out of left field. It is. Well, I, I took a, a, a job at a, kind of a corporate uh, communications place. This was in uh, 1989, and I moved to Knoxville for a couple of years. Um, I am not good in the corporate world because there's one – I commit the only real sin, the, o- the only unforgivable sin in the corporate world because, you know, corruption and incompetence, well, you know, you can let those go. I, I just find it really hard to take it seriously and to conceal that fact. And uh, as a result, that job lasted nine months, um, and I stayed there for another few months. But I did have a Kabbalah group when I was there. Beautiful part of the country, really nice people. And, um, you know, the New Age community in Knoxville was extremely small, and Southerners are very friendly, so, you know, I got to know kind of everyone in this small community really quite quickly. It was, it was a pleasant time. I... Uh, I uh, seriously considered staying, uh, but uh, uh, the, the career opportunities just weren't there. Shocking. So that's how Tennessee came in. Shocking that the <laughs> uh, the community was small in, in the Bible Belt. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And my final question, and this is, it's kind of a tough one to answer, I'm sure, but if you would describe yourself to someone, if you were starting a group, how would you explain your passion and knowledge for these wisdoms and what they could get out of it by, by, by just opening up and listening? Well, I think the key is self-knowledge, knowing something about yourself. Esotericism comes, esoteric comes from Greek roots, meaning further in. And a great deal about this process is going further into yourself to see what's going on. And uh, it's very advantageous to know what's going on inside yourself, because otherwise you're going to be like a large majority of people who who are wearing uh, practically wearing big sweatshirts with buttons that anybody can push and do. Uh, so maybe you look inside and you see where your buttons are. Uh, and, uh, maybe you will disconnect them, or maybe you can at least tell when somebody's pushing them. That kind of self-knowledge is, I mean, that's liberation, I think, in a, in a real, you know, 
a, a you know genuine practical sense. You're uh, less at the mercy of being manipulated by everything around that's trying to manipulate you. So I think that would be one thing. Um, then you know finding out well what you know what am I really? Who am I really? And uh, I think uh, you've seen enough of my lectures to know how I would answer that. But I think that's important because, you know, people are really going around and saying, I don't know who I am. Tell me who I am. Uh, or, you know, they buy some kind of um, identity off out of some uh, costume store at the mall, and that's who they think they are, pretend they are. That's kind of a sad way for a human being to be. I think some of these ideas um, can free you from some of that, although, yes, we all have our social roles, our, uh, our own personalities and whatnot, but um, uh, we could be a lot freer than we are. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough. It's like I said, this is just, it's a thrill for me. I am such a fan and such an admirer, and, and again, thank you so much, and please do come on again. Well, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much to both of you. Uh, you've been, you've been uh, very kind and, and fascinating, and the questions have been uh, very stimulating. So I enjoyed it very much. Oh, thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you. You too, bye both bye. of you. Take it easy. <sighs> Lauren, what do you think? That was very interesting. I enjoyed. Can I pick them or can I pick them? You can indeed. And it, it, isn't he just hypnotic sounding? He is. Like, you just want to listen to him like, like I do. Put his lectures on at night, put headphones on. Not in a creepy way. Don't be laughing at me, Lauren. Not in the red chat way. Not in the red chat. Those are different. That's very, in many ways, that is very different. He did like it when I got the Red Sox slam in there, though. Did you see that? Yeah. Have to talk baseball. Mm-hmm. Oh, so I know it's late there because we recorded a little later in this time zone, so it's really late where you are. That's not too bad. Oh, you're just saying that because, like, if we weren't recording, you'd be yelling, Brian, you damn bastard, why are you making me stay up so late? You're so terrible. Admit it. <laughs> but, uh, Lauren, you got to read this guy's books, and you got to check out some of these lectures because it's brilliant. And and like I said, even when I, when I told uh, him flat out that, you know, I don't have to agree with everything he believes or says to be such a fan and be so fascinated. And I think that's the amazing thing about someone like that is he's willing to discuss and be open to everybody's viewpoints. I don't know. I just think that um, the the problem in America is that religion is in your political sphere, and it is because it can't be denied. I mean, the prayer breakfasts <laughs> are political and religious, and I think that there needs to be an admission that it's going on, and that there is some religion going on in your in your politics. Can I, tell I you know something? that you want to keep the state. Yeah. I don't pray, but if I did pray, I might pray for breakfast because I love bacon and I love eggs. Um, but I just think that the the um that the, the biggest problem is is that people have to pick a side. They have to pick whether they're political and whether they're or whether they're religious. 
and I think that there's nothing wrong with being either and maybe I'm coming from a very biased point of view because of the country that I live in and we have had our problems with religion in this country and it's by no means over but you know it's not something that we're continu- that we're continually debate about uh, no you're right that, culturally in, in it's so different sphere. yeah it's culturally like, so it's different just, and it's like um say you know saying prayers in school um i like personally i don't think that that is um that that is necessarily constructive because if you say the lord's prayer then you know you've got to say the you know you've got to um adapt and include the other religions and i think that if people just accepted that there are religious people involved in politics and that it doesn't necessarily have to be a covert thing or something that needs to be hidden then you might find that i don't think that that the tensions would necessarily lessen but i think that um it would it would be a relief to some people to find out yes i can be a christian or i can be a muslim and i can still be a political figure as well that they i think that's what the separation of state and religion is is that you separate um you know when you're in work you don't bring your personal life to work and it's that it would be the same thing in politics you, don't, you wouldn't necessarily say well the bible says this and you know we need to have this law because the bible says that or the quran says that or the torah says this and i think it's just it's fine to have that religion and but i think you know it's become a sort of secret shame to you have to choose one or the other and if you get the wrong one in the wrong moment then there's issues and there are a lot of issues in America with that, but uh, that's a debate for another show. I think... I guess so, and, and and I have no right to say that, because I don't understand your country at all. And um, But I just think that, you know, from watching the documentaries where um, everything needs to be, like, religion needs to be kept hidden and secret and safe, whereas it's... Quite the opposite now. Everything's got to be religion now. You can't, um, you can't run for office in America without being a person of faith now. But then that that's going too far the other way. I mean, yes, and really that's matter. what happened. Like, and that's where the problems come in. I, and I think that stems from the fact that people who were religious had to keep it hidden for so long and weren't allowed to be religious and political that now it's sort of twisted the other way because you have, you know, the, you know it is all around the world you know the reaction to any sort of disaster um you know be it a pandemic or financial is to become more hardline and to become more conservative whereas um, i think i think you should be having to tell who your favorite baseball team is before you run for office in this country that's just my opinion i don't care what their religion is i just well, care who this, they're cheering for in 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 um the uk because of the reformation um the monarch or the heir to the throne is not allowed to marry a catholic so that's why Meghan markle had to convert she had to become a she had to become church of england and because i think she was catholic and i might be wrong on that but i i do know that there were some discussions where she did meet with the um 
with the bishop, um, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and had to have lessons because you know she's marrying into the family that is the head of our church, and. Um, so you're not allowed to you're not allowed to run for public office if you're a Catholic either. You have to be a Protestant. So that's what the Reformation gives you. Yeah, yeah, we're getting a little heavy. So before we get too crazy, we should call this a show. What do you think? I'm not getting crazy. I'm just I'm just saying the truth. That that's what happens. Is that? Oh no, I agree. It's, it's our it's our religion or uh, it. Church of England or nothing in this country. So, well, no, it's not. That's not true. We're pretty tolerant and everything. But if you want to go for public office or be prime minister, then you can't be Catholic. Yeah. I just don't want the hate mail. Well, how can we get hate mail? Because I'm saying a fact. Because this is America, Lauren. Trust me. Like I, I think Catholicism is a very beautiful religion, and you know most of the research that I do um, is based in the Catholic faith. But I can't help it that we had a massive reformation where we changed our religion from Catholicism to English English Catholicism, which then became English Protestantism, because our king wanted to divorce. <laughs> which is the best reason of all. <laughs> yeah, he wanted to. He wanted to get married to his side chick. Yeah. Make your side piece your official piece. Yeah, he wanted to make her his baby mama, That's but then she didn't give him the right type of baby. So. That's ahead. it for her then. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, I'm going to go feed the cat, and I think another queen. I think we're going to call it a show. What do you think, Lauren? Yes, we will. And we got some other great shows coming up in the future, folks. So check us out on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and email and TikTok. You can reach us. I'll give the first few on email at trans.history.rambling at gmail.com. And, of course, on Twitter at TA History. And, Lauren, what else we got? Um, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok are all quite happily at History Ramblings. There you go. So reach out to us. Tell us what you think. Uh, give us suggestions for guests, what you'd like to hear us talk about, uh, who you'd like to hear us talk about, um, more deep-fried foods that you like making because people have been sending me what they're making in deep fryers now, Lauren, and it's horrible. But <laughs> we'll talk about that in the next episode. Please keep sending brian that please that makes me smile oh so from brian in buffalo and lauren in swansea good night good night please do not google it and if you google it after this warning it's your own fault